Mary, I have to have a really serious conversation with you. Uh-oh, that doesn't sound great. So I got this transmission and it was your screen time data for the past few months on your no. iPhone. No, no, no. How? And so I'm not really at liberty to say where or how I got that information. Um, what I am prepared to say is there was a noticeable spike in one particular application on your cell phone. Oh, God. Yes. Do you have anything to say for yourself? You know, to paraphrase a great philosopher of our time, TikTok won't stop, <laughs> whatever the lyrics are to that song. I feel like your new bio is going to be, I got TikTok and it went like, Ooh. I'm going to have to take away the Windex. I'm going to have to take away the million dollar home that you've been using as a soundstage for the past few weeks. Uh, TikTok broke me. That's all I can say. Welcome to American Girls. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girl series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. And here we are again, Allison, with a very special bonus bonus episode. We already had an episode this week. We're coming back with a mini episode. We really can't be stopped with this content. Really Just like a millennial on TikTok. That's true. <laughs> it's so sad. It's so dark. I told some college students today that I recently discovered TikTok and I could feel like they were so sad for me. It was like it was so dark. And also like what they're using TikTok for versus what I'm using it for is so different. Where I'm like, guys, isn't houses of TikTok amazing? Like these crazy house tours. And they just gave me like a million mile stare. I was like, okay, never mind. Sorry. It's like, are we wanted on that website? No, we are not. Were Definitely our parents not. necessarily wanted right away on Facebook? No, they were not. History repeats itself. Wow. I mean, just like these generational cycles and shifts, like I don't want to be part of this. And yet here I am. Here we are. And I think like, you know, among the many things that we bring to the world, like we used to talk about our expertise and not expertise. It's like I'm cultivating an expertise in the way people present themselves in mirrors on TikTok. Yep. Same. Like I'm also very into how people's presentation of their space tells a story about themselves. And that's, you know, that's my TikTok expertise. Like, I will watch anybody, literally anybody's tour of their house on TikTok. <laughs> Are you watching things other than TikTok? Like, what have you been into? I've been dipping in and out of a lot of things. So I want to say that I've been watching a show called Betty on HBO, which is like my dream. It's like a show about women who skateboard. And as you know, I've been restricted from skateboarding, and that's been really tough for me. <laughs> Um, extremely tough for me. Like, Anna, if you're listening, I still, you know, July 31 is my birthday. I would love a skateboard. Thank you. Um, then I've also been watching, we watched all of Never Have I Ever, Mindy Kaling's mm. new show on Netflix, which is also really, really excellent and made me cry. Um, Betty did not. That show certainly did. It took me a couple episodes to get into it, but I really, really highly recommend it. And I, lastly, I also watched, um, there's a movie called The Half of It on Netflix, and it's directed by Alice Wu. And I've not seen her first film, which came out in 2004, because it's not streaming anywhere right now, but I really want to see it. It's a really excellent like coming-of-age movie on Netflix, really accessible, really well done. 
also cry during that. You know, I'm just, I don't know, Allison, I'm just crying looking at screens these days. Like, what are you up to? Gotten back into hoarders, which makes me feel stable. And as you know, I'm like binge watching back all of Catfish because I think it's an American treasure. Uh Uh-huh. I don't want to say a more serious because I think hoarders is very serious, but differently serious recommendation is there was recently a series on HBO about the Atlanta child murders and it's really really well done a criticism that people have had of the show is that the first 15 to 20 or so minutes are about everything like it's a kaleidoscope of 50 years of atlanta history and broader civil rights history Mm. let that be your invitation as opposed to a marker of confusion Mm. i think it's one of the better things i've watched in true crime and you know i watch a lot yes you do i think one of the most brilliant lines in the series so the atlanta child murders was or or rather is a, a list of young children all black children who were murdered in and around atlanta in a very short like less than two year period of time and someone says you know people ask me like why are you dragging this up one of the people being interviewed and her response is you know how much attention has john benet ramsey gotten versus these dozens of children and it's a really impactful moment and i really really recommend it Wow, that sounds really good. Where can I find that again? So that's on HBO. It's a reinvestigation of the Atlanta child murders. Spoiler from me, the man who's in prison didn't do it. Oh, God. Here we go. I know. I I won't do this because it's not a true crime podcast yet, but... By the same token, if you're covering Addie and you're not talking about the carceral system as a constant crime, what are you doing? Get out of here. I know. Seriously. Our dear friend Lacey, speaking of TikTok and all the things we care about, posted a pretty prominent TikTok of the one where it says it's the remix and it's a young student and he's pointing to the system of slavery and then the system of peonage and he says like it's the remix, which is brilliant. Yeah. And very true. We should put that on the syllabus. We will. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. I mean, if you can't, if we can't put the, push these things out, hopefully get them in classrooms. Why are we doing this? Truly, why? You know, honestly, I haven't made a syllabus in quite a few years. Never really felt like it was a strength. I'll say that. That said, this is the best kind of syllabus because it was made with you all. It was made with great love and care. And there's no rules. Truly no rules, which is my style, 1,000%. Just want to start off by saying thanks to everyone who reached out to us, whether it was via DM, email, who knows what. Really appreciate you all sharing stuff with us. We do, and I really appreciate the flexibility that all of you have with us. When we started this out and we watched the Felicity movie, we were like, we will never top this. Like, there's the mountain of Shailene Woodley, and we will never come off of that mountain. And then you all wrote some, like, truly deeply depraved fan fiction about Josefina. I'm still not over that. (laughs) And then you all went with us as we talked about Kirsten and... With Addie, we've just been really, I don't want to say enjoying, but it's been really gratifying to receive such substantive and productive feedback and to be in dialogue with you all about the stories and what they've meant to you. And we started this by looking at a few think pieces about Addie and 
I think what's great about her stories is the research is so dense, but there's an accessibility to her. And so this is just another attempt to say, like, what are these other pieces we can tease out or put into our collective toolkit to understand not so much Addie per se, but kind of the world that she represents? Right. And I think something that's really like important to revisit, even though it's kind of hiding in plain sight, is that, you know, we all revisit we all like encountered these two books when we were eight or nine years old and now encountering them as adults like we can handle different lenses and tools whatever metaphor you want um to think with you know as we reread these books so i think our conversation with vera is a great addition to this syllabus in that way i mean sharing histories and stories that maybe you wouldn't perhaps um use in in teaching an eight or nine year old about um, the lives of, of children like Addie and, and uh, the adults that they grew into. But I think now as adults, we can handle that and we can handle some of these other sources that really kind of flesh out this history and frankly speak to a lot of through lines to the present. So on this episode, we're just going to kind of cherry pick some of the things that you will find on the syllabus, um, which you can find on our site. And we just want to say at the outset that this was such a cool experience that we're hoping to make some other syllabi for the other characters that we've already covered and those that will um, continue to meet and any other topics that we think are of interest. So if there's a syllabus topic that you would really Mm -hmm. love to see, please reach out to us because, you know, this was really fun to put together. This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. Yeah. So I want to start by one of the first things that got sent to us was the true story of Harriet Jacobs. And that was more or less self-published in Boston with uh, other abolitionist allies in 1861. And it's called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. This was sent to us by a listener and friend. And I really recommend this to try to access some of the experiences that Addie would have had. If you listen to our interview with Vera, um, there's also a connection there this woman narrated her story to a white abolitionist and then she turned it into what she thought would be sort of a readable novel type story for other abolitionists and allies. So there are some problems with the book. So you want to pick up a more recent copy that has good annotations and a good introduction, but that's really a great primary source to start with. Yeah. And that's an excellent source because for a lot of reasons, as you're saying, but I think thinking about how we get these histories and and mediated through what sources also helps us to think about how important power is in terms of who gets to share these histories, um, where they get to be shared, 
and who mediates them. So who gets to just write an autobiography with no one filtering their content? So if you think about the autobiography Mm -hmm. of Ben Franklin, one of the most famous autobiographies in American history and earliest, no one was saying, well, Ben, thanks for telling me your story. I'm going to put this in prettier prose because, you know, obviously you can't handle that. And I'm just going to pretty this up too because I know what readers should get out of your life. No, like Ben Franklin would have probably thrown his eyeglasses, early eyeglasses at you, maybe struck you with a lightning bolt. I'm not sure. But the point is, if you think about autobiography (laughs) as like, what? Allison, Ben Franklin (laughs) was a wild person. We don't know what he was capable of. We don't know. Anyway, Allison, pull it together. Um, It's so early in the episode. Oh, God. Oh my god. You're having a breakdown. Pull it together, woman. I know. Yeah. Maybe not. What is doing this to you? I don't know. I will say for the listeners, like just being reflective, you know, we both listen we both listen to hours of tape of ourselves weekly, which is not as pleasant as someone might imagine, right? It's uglier on this show and it's definitely a function of quarantine and not a function of a change in serotonin or anything else so just putting that out there like i giggle non-stop in our chat with Lacey, and like she's great but you were just like uh but i just... think it's also a function of like i'm under socialized we'll, we'll get back to addy wow I'm just... wow i'm keeping my eye on you i'm worried about you i think we're just like living it up in real time we kind of are i mean <laughs> uh, as you know i forced you to watch keeping up with the kardashians with me it's like we're all turning to coping mechanisms we never thought we'd dip back into but whew, here we are if that makes you laugh just like engage it embrace the giggling allison we need it we need it in these times whatever you need to get through uh, i'm here for you like the tiktok of it all i get it so just lean in uh except not in the cheryl sandberg way um Don't lean on somebody, just giggle and lean in. Um, But anyway, the whole point of what I was trying to say before, before I was not so rudely interrupted, um, just in a self-care interruption of giggling, uh, was that autobiography can be a radical act of self-possession. So I think Harriet Jacobs is a really interesting piece in thinking about that and the ways that she was both allowed and not allowed to possess her own story in print. Um, So that's an interesting thing to think with. And you use the phrase primary source, Allison, which I think tips off an interesting kind of distinction between some of the things that appear on this syllabus. Yeah, so that particular autobiography, and we're kind of using that term loosely, is mediated through someone else. But it's a source from the same time period in which Addie Walker and the real people that she's based on lived in. So it's a source from that time. We're going to include some other sources that people have sent to us, some newspapers, some other real stories from people's experiences as they lived through them. But we also want to give you perspectives from historians, scholars of empathy, people who study these topics, who are looking at them and writing secondary sources. So a good thing as an example to pair with something like the Harriet Jacobs story would be Dr. Marcia Chatelain's American Historian Meet American Girl. She goes really in a thorough way through some of the highlights of Addie's story and talks about what it's like for her as a scholar of the Great Migration to actually look at these through the critical lens of a historian living in the 21st century and looking back on kind of what these books mean. So it's really a secondary source and using the Addie stories as a kind of primary 
outlet to examine. She also has an amazing true crime podcast, but we'll talk about that some other time. I mean, that is, I love her takes also on Law and Order. So that's just an aside, but she's everything. I don't like, like, she's beyond a triple threat. You're sort of obsessed with her, and you did do some light stalking of her one time. We won't get into it. So I knew she was appearing at a conference at which I was also attending. We'll just shout out her book. Her book is called Franchise, about the history of McDonald's. She's brilliant. It's brilliant. I knew she was appearing at a women's history conference. Did I attend her panel on McDonald's? Yes, I did. Did I say, I love your podcasting work and I recognized you by your voice? Yes, I did. She tweeted about it later. Wow. But see, that that's really beautiful because I think you probably made her day with that. And it's always nice to, like, boost someone up if you can, you know? Yes. Why not? Um, Okay, yeah, so that's an excellent source. We also want to um, point people to a book that we received many um, suggestions about to add to the syllabus, and that is They Were Her Property, White Women as Slave Owners in the American South by Stephanie Jones Rogers. This book was recommended by several people, and in particular, one of the contributors warned that this book will probably horrify you, and that's one of the most critical elements of it. When we were studying United States history and particularly women's history, one of the biggest changes that's happened in the past 20 or so years was this perception from thinking of women as one big category in the 19th century and thinking of all women as oppressed and this critically important transformation in noting the ways in which women used white supremacy as a vehicle to prop up their own power vis-a-vis black women, vis-a-vis Chinese women, the way that white women were supporters of systems of misogyny, even if they weren't universally beneficial for them. And this book is a major indictment of these old studies, which kind of lumped all women in the same category. Like Kirsten's journey is not Addie's journey. And we know that. Right. And I think thinking, too, about um, the ways that women as adults like had a certain I think this book in particular, I think what it's engaging is the idea that um, white women in the South, if they had um, property in the form of enslaved people, that was part of their dowry, so to speak, like that was power that they felt they could wield um, in their lives and their marriages. And I think that that's, as you're saying, um, not something that's been really studied or thought of like as a nexus point of power. So I'm, I've have this book in my car. I can't wait to read it. There's so many books on my list right now, but um, I'm really excited that this is on here. And we just want to make sure you know that we have range, I suppose. Um, We received fantastic recommendations of academic books where people are recommending some of the newest, best scholarship all about the kind of worlds in which people like Addie Walker inhabited. We also have this tremendously creative and brilliant listener base who sends us things that sometimes confound and inspire us. Do you know what I'm about to say? I think I do. I'm very excited about this. I am too. So of the many different ways that Addie kind of reaches into our lives and makes us think, listener Lucy reached out to us and said, if I make a whole sort of dreamscape around Dungeons and Dragons, do you want to read it? Yes, of Of course course you want to read it. Is there a world where we say no to that? No. So we are sharing with permission. She created a full profile for Addie Walker. She's in the Paladin class. I don't know what that means. But I trust Lucy on this because she's a a great listener. 
she made up a whole profile, which we're sharing in the syllabus of her strengths, like intelligence and wisdom, spot on. Her animal companion, obviously Sunny the Canary, obviously. obviously. Her inventory, letter from home, cowrie necklace, brass ring, ribbon, lantern, and an explorer's anthology of ancient runes. Ooh. I don't get that, but I trust you, Lucy. Here's the thing. Dungeons and Dragons is coming back with a vengeance right now. Like, it's it's having such a hot moment. And I'm just ashamed to admit I've never played it. And I feel like it's so complicated I won't understand. And or there's role play involved. And if it feels anything like charades, I won't be able to participate for mental health reasons. So... Someone needs to reach out and let me know, like, can I handle playing this game? Because I would really love to benefit from the creative creativity of this listener. I'm just so blown away every time we get such awesome submissions like this. I think it really also challenges us to think about the kinds of sources that we can use or that are acceptable to use to understand the past. And I think when I was growing up in school, I remember a lot of the sources we read or the textbooks we read were so dry and it wasn't really interesting. And history of nothing else is a story. It's mm. a story to think with and reinterpret and and use perhaps to order your world and your place within it. So the fact that Lucy has created this awesome storytelling jumping off point with Dungeons and Dragons, I think should really challenge us all to think about the different things we can use to teach history, to learn history. Like I wish I had had this when I was in school. Yeah, and what you're saying about story makes me think of some of the very best books that we have read in American history. Thinking of a book like Taya Miles's The Ties That Bind, Mm -hmm. and that is based on the true story of an Afro-Cherokee family. Um, What's so brilliant about that book is she pulls a lot of tools from the literary world and does a lot of thick description and imagining of scenes in this family's life. And the book is still very solidly in the world of nonfiction, but what it does is it takes these tools of storytelling and it gives you a more in-depth, humane portrait of people who didn't leave as many sources or whose sources were sort of stolen from the culture. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think if you can teach something to someone through the medium of story, it's, it's much more memorable. It resonates And I think it's just, you know, for me, it's the primary way that I try to communicate information about the past. Yeah, we also, you know, part of what the D&D character brings up for us is the importance of objects. And one of the objects listed under this profile is the cowrie shell, which is so critical to kind of the vision that many of us have of Addie. I also think it's a powerful connection to what we talked about with Vera at Historic Stagville and the fact that it was a real cowrie shell that was uncovered in archaeological expeditions that served partially as this inspiration for this accessory for Addie. It's this one like very small physical object that is a portal that connects us between the real family of that plantation and Addie. Yeah, 100%. I think it's it's really powerful to see it on the site and to kind of just imagine its discovery and and thinking about like where that the the life of that object and what it can tell us is is really powerful. Um I should add that reminds me that somebody submitted um a guide for discovering Smithsonian objects related to Addie Walker, mm. which is cool. Um so, you know, you can kind of take a spin around there and take and see in some of those objects as well. 
And since we can't visit museums right now in in person just yet, um, we also received quite a few recommendations around literacy. That was something that really struck a chord with you all. So definitely probe the syllabus if that's something of interest to you. Um, One of those recommendations was Jacqueline Joins Royster's book, Traces of a Stream, Literacy and Social Change Among African-American Women. And this came highly recommended by a listener um, about literacy and composition studies. I will never forget being in a seminar and someone said that they wanted to do a study of literacy on plantations. This was really kind of scoffed at. And this person was basically told, it's a non-story. There's there's not anything to learn there. Um, Or it's going to be very challenging. You're not going to learn very much. And I think part of what this type of scholarship does is it stretches us to reimagine and to be a lot more creative. Um, You know, in some ways, reading a Ben Franklin autobiography and and writing the 10,000th book on Ben Franklin is one kind of lift. It's a whole other lift to say, I'm going to imagine the interior life of a person who has no letters, has no books written about them. Right. And I think part of the challenge in creating a lot of these histories, too, that not always um, folks don't always think about because it doesn't really touch their life if they're not doing this work. But, you know, a lot of times you have to think about you have to get through the ways that these collections were organized by people who lived 100, 150 years ago, who thought about objects of interest in a really different way. So, for example, you know, if you were doing organizing a collection of Civil War letters, you might foreground the letters to and from white soldiers because you imagine that being the most important piece of a military history. And in that collection, and this is like a real anecdote shared with me by actually a study, a scholar of literacy um, who was studying um, the the literacy of free people, he went into this collection, which nowhere in its record mentioned that it had letters from free people of color. But within it, he found lots of them because um, free people of color were working in soldiers' camps and then after the war in freedmen's camps. And they had just not never been cataloged, never been part of this original collection in any form of description because the people who organized it didn't think they mattered. So not only is it difficult to tell the histories of folks for whom certain records don't exist, but sometimes the records exist. They just are, you know, tied up in this maze of, you know, white supremacy and God knows what else. I mean, what you're saying is so striking partially because it really so confidently assumes that every scholar coming in would only be interested in the stories of people like themselves and that every scholar would be usually a white man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean... And a safe assumption in, in many <laughs> contexts, right? Right. Yeah. 100%. And I think in some ways within history, we kind of have a triumphalist conversation amongst our profession about like, wow, things are getting so much better. We're studying not just white men anymore, not just elite white men. But, you know, the fact that these are still issues, like we're still having to navigate the choices somebody made 150 years ago and how they organized their collection, that it's not only deciding to tell broader stories and be more representative, but also having to, in some cases, re-examine collections and how they've been organized or cataloged so that folks who want to tell those stories can. So you can kind of appreciate just how difficult 
it can be. But also, that's how history works. I mean, the stories we tell of the past are always determined determined by the standards of the present. So even as our public conversation right now continues to change, the things that we care about change, um, we will continually be um, renegotiating the past. So, you know, it's, it's a minefield for sure. I also think we're living in an age where people fortunately are able to share, you know, like the power dynamics are still there, but people are able to share with us, with other people, brilliant interpretations and reinterpretations of history at a a threshold that in some ways is easier to enter, right? Like there's still so many doors that are closed in the profession and, and closed to people. But I think of something like the fact that we've connected with so many people through direct message or the way that people have reached out to us, the fact that there is an Aries ice cream and that someone who is a scholar of ice cream just shares that information. Thank you, Hannah Spiegelman. Just shares that information with the world and gives us, for example, an Ada Lovelace ice cream. That is really mind-blowing. And also, if you know history, not surprising. I'm thinking of someone like George Washington Carver. Mm Mm-hmm. He was brilliant in so many ways and was a true scientist, a true academic. He also was noticing that as an example, it made people feel better if their walls were interesting colors to them. And so he developed different pigments and dyes and natural-based wall coverings, basically like uh, paint-adjacent type product. And that's also in the archives at Tuskegee. It's like people's creativity has always been there. I think something the internet does is it exposes toxicity on the other end, but then it opens us up to this range of creative people. Like I think the internet as a source is something that if we had made this podcast 10 years ago would have felt really different. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it, it kind of does this meta thing too, where it reminds us that the internet is a source. And Mm -hmm. in many ways, like Marsha's Ferguson syllabus inspired this syllabus. And a lot of the documentation around those events are people archiving tweets, archiving Facebook posts, and so on. And I think that's a big conversation right now amongst archives and special collections is how do we archive our current history right now? Like, what are today's primary sources? If you had a, if someone wanted to write the history of your life, what would they be using? You know, most likely they'd want to maybe see your browser history. How terrifying nope. a thought is that? Um, you know, they'd want to see what you're putting out there on social media. What are you looking at? The things that define the shape of your day. And how do we preserve that history? If people aren't sending snail mail anymore, how do we preserve are present so that in some 50 years, 100 years from now, someone wanting to understand what was going on right now could write our history. But um, thinking about a lot of things on Twitter and even TikTok and Facebook and so on, it's like you can see so much of people's immediate reactions to news events, to this pandemic happening in real time. And you can really appreciate it when you start thinking as a historian about how valuable this stuff is and the challenge of really... um, you know, preserving it and sharing it. Yeah, two other sources that I think go exactly with what you're talking about. Um, Dr. Ibram on Twitter, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi tweeted, you know, right after the aftermath of the breaking of the story about Ahmad Arbery. He says, I've been speechless all day about the lynching. Sometimes words can't paint the picture of thoughts, of feelings, of rage, of reckoning again with one's existence as a Black American an existence of always being one step away from racist terror from death. And this sparked a 
conversation on Twitter and other social media platforms about this event as a lynching. And you saw circulating across different communities online the reposting of the NAACP flag, a man was lynched yesterday. So mm. you saw on the one hand, like people sharing their thoughts in relation to this incident, this kind of reawakening, unfortunately, of this imagery from the past. And even within sort of our context, again, people send us things all the time. And so we get exposed to more than we could ever just find on our own. American Girls um, IG or Kitsy XOXO actually created a running doll that looked like Mr. Arbery and posted about racism and the disease of racism. And I think if you were trying to explain 2020 to someone and you said, well, you know, someone created an American girl like me doll dressed up as a man who's going out for a jog and then connected it to an NAACP lynching flag. Like there's so many layers and so much density, complexity to our social media landscape, but knowing how to navigate that is its own kind of literacy, I think. Yeah, 100%. And I think you know, in some ways, this syllabus is a gesture towards helping people do that, you know, if they want to try to navigate all the available sources um, that could possibly help you think about um, these books or these topics or the things that they suggest. This is just one small entry point. And this is certainly something that we'll continue to um, accept submissions to and post on. But I think as that tweet that you read tells us it's also important to think about history in the past and the sources we have to recover it as always being somewhat limited. So in other words, we'll never really know what it was like in 1865 to do almost anything. I mean, we can recover material objects, primary sources, somebody's diary, letters people send to each other, newspaper coverage, whatever. But the truth, 100% truth of the past will always be somewhat elusive. All we can really do is sit with the sources we have and draw interpretations from them. And so this is one small gesture to say, here's both some primary sources of 1865 and 2020 that we might draw interpretations from, and also some great works by historians, by great creative minds like Lucy that can help us you know, interpret the things that we have available. We also really want to thank the listener who reached out to us with Emancipation Proclamation broadsheets of celebrations. And part of what I think was really great about this person reaching out to us is they shared not just a primary source, which we're going to link to, but they also kind of gave some thought to these sources from the early 20th century. What would Addie's life have been like by then? Would Mm. she have been comfortable traveling or would she have been allowed to travel to some of these kind of Juneteenth type events? And what was Juneteenth like by the early 20th century? You can imagine an Addie in sort of late middle age by that point, you know, if she's looking around her by early 20th century and, you know, by that point, reconstruction has failed, has ended prematurely, lynchings in her and other communities, you know, is she thinking of like baby Addie reading it in 1865 and does it feel even more hollow, you know? And I, that's what I appreciate was the way people connected these things to Addie's story, but also weren't limited by it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It was, it was expansive and it was really imaginative. And, um, you know, it's definitely inspired me to pick up some of these books that I haven't read yet. And, uh, Yeah, I'm just feeling very grateful for all our listeners. 
Yes, and you also send us funny pictures, and we appreciate that as well. We need those too. God knows. People <laughs> make me laugh so hard, the people who message me. It's like I'm getting Murder, She Wrote content. I'm getting a lot of Dolly content. Like, I accept all content. Like, God bless. Some kind of salty, potentially Leo content, people who aren't Leos, who don't get it. That's fine. <laughs> but we need it. We need you it. You know, And a few months ago, um, you know, back when the world was, like, not quite at the state it is right now, many, many, many of you wonderfully sent us a tweet by Caroline Moss where she was talking about what an American girl in 25 years might be like with her coronavirus accessories. Mary, how does that connect to our show? (laughs) Well, Allison, I'm very happy to say that we actually have Caroline as a guest. We do. We found out that like we, you know, again, like shoot your shot. Was oh, that the wrong? Is that is that inappropriate? Um, I think you should just go for it anyway. <laughs> um, we reached out to her and she very graciously agreed to do a catalog challenge with us. Um, so like in the world where, you know, she's a famous pop star and we're Frankie Muniz, we went for it, but she wow. said yes. How dare you identify us as Frankie Muniz? I My God, that's quite, the best. I think you're clever. What? Where did that even? What? I no. don't know. <laughs> oh my God, that's that's really rough. That's rough to sit with. You're a middle child, so I apologize. I. Oh my God, it's like the hits just keep on coming. I know. I'm sorry. It's rough. It's rough to sit with that. Um, you know, wow, so much to so much I could say, but I won't say. <laughs> But you won't. I apologize. No, no, no. It's all good. Um, Yeah, so we're very excited for that. And so we are doing a challenge with her about the catalogs. We'll say more about that on that episode. But suffice it to say, it's like we give each other a budget and we have to, you know, say what we would buy from different years of the catalog. And there's also a way that you can play this game with us because the catalogs have been uploaded by a hero we don't know. But, um, you know, so thinking about how tough this time has been, Sometimes you just need a little fantasy hour where you spend fake money on stuff that stopped being available roughly 15 years ago. (laughs) Um, So I'm really looking forward to that. We learn that among us, there is a bitty baby, Stan. I won't say who. You have to tune in to find out. We're not going to say who. We're definitely not going to say who. And, you know, for those of you who are part of our Patreon group, um, you'll also get to check out our Jessica Simpson memoir episode. So I don't know if she likes bitty babies or not. You know, in 400 pages, she sadly did not cover that. She didn't, she covered a lot. We'll say that. She covered, she covered she did. a whole she covered, lot. She covered a lot. We are big fans and we appreciate her very much. We do. Um, I stand her. I will stand her for the ages after this book. Yes. Wow. And I just like I just want to forecast like even a little bit further for folks like we are very delighted to also announce that just in time for Pride Month we will be moving on to Samantha. <laughs> she will be the episode after our special shopping episode and because I read all of your DMs I just want to clear the air that like we are at times I would say unkind to Felicity and to Samantha. But that doesn't mean that we love any of you any less. That's a good distinction. Good point. Yes. And, you know, it doesn't even mean we like them any less. It's sort of like, 
You know, it's like when you somebody says something about someone in your family and you're like, how dare you? And then you say the same exact thing two seconds later and you're like, this is different because I'm in the family. <laughs> yes. That's us yes. with the AGs. Or that's how it I'm is. telling myself it is. But yeah, you know what? Pride Month kicking it off with Samantha. Would love to hear more thoughts about, you know, is she the queerest of them all? I don't know. Again, I don't remember any of the plots of these books. Like, is she the first victim of the Titanic? I don't know. But like, we'll find out. There's a sailor outfit. I know that much. I certainly wish they would tell us. Wow. Well, Allison, if somebody wants to get into your DMs and chat with (laughs) you about Samantha theories and God knows what else, where can they find you? I am very easy to find. I am at Allison Horrocks on Twitter and Instagram. And Mary, I know I've already shared it with you, but if people want to share Michael Jordan hot takes or comparisons of his sneakers and Golden Girls, <laughs> where should they find you? Or, you know, any like last minute wedding tips. I think this might be the last episode that comes out. Yes. Before like, wow, this is my last episode as a single person. I can't even believe yes. that. Um, yeah, please contact me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney or on Twitter at Mary Mahoney 123. And if you want to reach out to the show, please be sure to visit our website. There you will find our telephone number as well as our email. You can tweet at us at a girls pod or follow us on American Girls Podcast on Instagram. Very exciting. And of course, our syllabus will be available on our website. So feel free to find it there. And, you know, if you read it and get inspired, don't fret. You can always submit stuff to us and we'll just keep adding to the syllabus as time goes on. And like we said, we'll keep doing some others. So we look forward to getting your contributions to those as well. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you on the next episode. 